From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. All right, Eric, good to see you again. You too, Mike. Welcome to episode four, What's Wrong with Revenue? This is actually a session today that's a personal favorite of mine. Why a short-term get-me-leads-today mentality won't produce revenue. So before we jump in, again, I want to remind people that they can uh, access our show on our website. There's a link at the bottom in the footer called What's Wrong with Revenue. All our shows are now posted there. You can submit a question for us to answer. You can subscribe to get notifications on the show. And like I said, you can watch uh, back episodes. So I want to start with a story, Eric. Um, and this is a little bit related to today. And it's a little bit related to some of the stuff we talked about last week. Uh, as you know, but maybe not everybody knows, I'm moving. I'm moving in two weeks. And I wanted to buy some outdoor furniture. And Many of you know, buying furniture today is a major undertaking due to the logistical uh, challenges associated with uh, pretty much everything that we buy today. So I started very early. Now, there's lots of different kinds of outdoor furniture you can buy. So I did a lot of research and was the perfect customer from a marketing perspective, going on websites, looking stuff up, checking reviews. And I ended up connecting with this company. You may have heard of it. They're very heavy, heavily market themselves on social media. And that is how I found them on social media. Call it Outer. Um, I don't know whether they're like high end or not, but they're a little more expensive than maybe you, you would expect. But regardless, I had a very interesting experience. So I wasn't sure what I needed, right? Which is common when people are making large purchase decisions. And they very quickly hopped on a chat with me and ended up doing some like design work from, from my outdoor space. I gave them the dimensions and they did some drawings and they shared it with me. I had a personal relationship with this guy, Nick over there. And I actually had a really remarkable experience from a marketing perspective. The reason I'm telling you this is, is not just because of marketing, but I didn't know when to actually buy and order this, the, the furniture because I couldn't take possession of it until we moved into the house in, in the middle of October. So I kept delaying and delaying and delaying. And I was very honest with them. Like, I don't want to order it too early. They were like, I understand. They kept checking in with me. Uh, eventually, I thought I was close enough. I'm thinking like, oh, a month out, it's going to take three to four weeks to ship it. I, I got in touch with the, literally the person who I was talking to. So I'm not just talking to some random website. I'm talking, her name is Olivia. I emailed her. I said, I think I'm ready to order the furniture. She said, okay, great. This is what's going to happen. Two to four days, you'll get an email from our shipper at not notifying you that they have your stuff. And then the shipping company will 
get in touch with you to set up delivery. I'm like, okay, that'd be perfect. I can't take it until October 9th. Okay, great. Interestingly enough, two days after that conversation, I get a call from the shipper. We're ready to deliver your furniture tomorrow. I said, well, wait a minute. I can't take it until the 9th. The shipper was a little taken aback. I don't know what to do. Well, you're gonna, we're gonna have to charge you to hold it for you. I said, no, I don't think I'm gonna pay for you to, maybe we can send it back to outer. Okay, great. Maybe you can send, he, I'm gonna get in touch with them and we'll get back to you. Okay, great. Later that day, I get an email from Olivia. So sorry, Mike, we are taking, uh, they are going to hold your furniture for you, no charge, and they will deliver it on October 9th. Great, awesome. The, the reason I'm telling you this story is, they took care of this experience for me all the way through marketing, sales, and service. Now, I still have to get the furniture. I have to put it together. But assuming that goes well, this is an amazing experience that I'm obviously telling all of you. I'm not trying to plug the company, but using it as an example. And the same story I'll tell many, many other people who are also probably looking for outdoor furniture, the people that come over my house. Wow, this is great. Where'd you get it? Like, Had I had a poor experience, I would have been telling that story. But because I had this positive experience, I'm going to be telling this story. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's B2C, Mike, and I'm B2B. Well, that's an interesting perspective, except that these B2C experiences that we're all having today are causing us to expect similar experiences from our B2B purchases, right? Eric loves Warby Parker. He talks about it constantly. I just told you a story about Outer. Amazon is teaching all of us what kind of experiences we should accept from our companies that we do business with and B2B will be no different. If you're not looking at your end-to-end -end experience for your prospects and customers, you're gonna be missing out. So one of the things Eric and I have talked about is sharing more practical experiences with you guys that illustrate some of the concepts we've been talking about. I thought that would be a good one to kick off our show today. Now, before we get into it, I also wanna let you know that we're gonna be launching a new segment today called Love It or Leave It where we will talk about a specific tactic in revenue generation, and we'll decide whether it's something you should love or leave as you're trying to decide what tactics to execute for your own company. So also excited about that today. So with all that behind us, let's get into it. And to kick the show off, Eric and I obviously talk to a lot of CEOs and businesses, and a lot of people say they have a long-term perspective around marketing sales and revenue generation in general. But unfortunately, most people don't act like that. They say they're looking at it long-term, but they end up driving a lot of activity based on short-term thinking. For instance, once someone says, get me leads today, long-term thinking is out the window. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit today. What happens actually when you ask for leads immediately, we're gonna go through all of that, um, we say it frequently with our clients, revenue generation, digital transformation, even installing new marketing tactics in your company. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You have to have stamina. You have to stick it out. You can't quit. And you have to have this long-term perspective on adding these kind of elements to your business if you're missing it today. Eric, anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, a good opening. Um, I uh, like to read, and I just read the new book by Gino Wickman, 
who uh, is the founder of the EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. And I guess because he's getting a little older and perhaps a little wiser, he wrote a book called The EOS Life. In that book, he reflects back on some of the decisions he made and counsels you on making other decisions. One of the chapters is about viewing things as 10-year decisions. And I thought that was very applicable for today's episode, because if you make decisions based on a 10-year time frame, your decision will be completely different. Let's talk about Outer, your favorite furniture company. If they said, listen, in 10 years, our BHAG, or Big Hairy Audacious Goal, is that every homeowner knows our name and 20% of them have ordered from us, then helping you with some of the challenges goes to that 10-year vision. But if the CEO or founder of that company says, we want to drive as much profitability this year and sell the company, that's a completely different way of looking at it. Now you don't have enough people in customer service. You're not answering emails quickly. Uh, you're not building upon relationships. Mike, you're going to own four or five, six houses over your lifetime. You might have outer furniture in three of them, right, over that 10-year time horizon. And I thought that was really interesting and thought to myself, I don't make decisions based on 10 years. I should start doing that. It'll really be fruitful. The last point about long-term thinking is that um, uh, there's the old phrase, um, you can't get enough done in one year, but you're blown away how much you can get done in 10 years. And that's also goes to that same kind of long-term decision-making process because business owners who come, I need leads tomorrow, are they really thinking about the long-term benefit of what they could do to build something wonderful? Or are they just looking to hit next quarter's numbers? And that's a really uh, great way to start our conversation today. Makes a ton of sense. Hopefully people will reflect back on what we're talking about and, and maybe think a little differently going forward, especially into next year. So we got some questions. We're going to cover those today. We got a new segment. We're going to cover that today. Let's kick the conversation off with why short-term thinking, and I just use, Eric and I use this phrase constantly, get me leads today. So we're, when we say get me leads today, we're basically uh, connecting that to short-term thinking. Why doesn't that produce revenue? Like what happens when someone says, get me leads today? What, what activities start to percolate that might actually be contrary to what they think they're asking for, which is get me leads so I can drive more revenue. What happens in the thinking of the people who are executing the programs when someone says to them, forget next month, I need, lead, I need leads tomorrow? Like what, what happens? Eric, you want to talk about that a little bit? Shortcuts. Immediately shortcuts. And we know that what happens when you take a shortcut, right? So lots of clients, I mean, we've been doing this for 19 years, so I can reflect back on some of the many, 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 many clients we've had. The get me leads people are like strategy, strategy, just get started generating leads. They don't want to take the time to put the cart before, no, the horse before the cart, right? And what does that mean? So if you try to bake a cake with just the ingredients and no recipe, it doesn't come out well. If you have a great recipe and you follow the recipe, even if you don't know how to cook, you get a great cake because you have a plan. And that's what happens a lot. We had a recent client who uh, basically um, uh, allowed us to touch upon strategy, but as soon as his patients ran thin, he really just wanted to put us all into paid advertising. So we said, look, paid advertising is great, but what are we going to say? What are we going to offer? How are we going to drive them back to a landing page? How are we going to convert them? How are we going to nurture them? How are we going to say the right things that points to your company as the obvious choice to do business? We have to think all that through before we start spending money on ads. And he said, nah, just do the ads. 
And that's a problem because yeah, you're trying to generate leads today, but you're spinning your wheels. You're spending extra money. You're doing uh, things that you wouldn't normally do if you had a good plan. You're winging it as opposed to sticking to your, your strategy. And lots of times, you know, it, it takes a few months or quarters for a strategy to get traction. And if you don't, you know, let it uh, blossom, you still don't get the results. And obviously you're in the same place you were a year from now, but you spent a boatload of money. And that's where really taking more long-term view of how you're generating revenue is so much more uh, powerful. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another example that we see pretty frequently. So if I'm running your marketing department for you and you demand I generate leads this month, besides taking shortcuts, I'm also going to be executing a bunch of different tactics. And let me, let me give you an example. No one said anything about the quality of those leads. You just asked for more leads. So I can generate a ton of leads from a website that has decent traffic with a bunch of early buyer journey offers. And I can just put them all over the website and I will generate a boatload of leads. But are those leads qualified leads? Are they even good quality leads? What do you think you're gonna do with those leads? You're gonna turn those leads over to the sales reps because you still wanna turn those leads into revenue and, and new customers. So when you start turning early buyer journey leads over to your sales reps, they're gonna be wasting a lot of time talking to people who aren't ready to buy yet. Just to go back to this experience with my furniture, I was an early buyer journey lead. If a rep had been calling me every week while I was trying to decide when the right time to order was, I would have been super frustrated, kind of annoyed, and might have actually even considered taking my money somewhere else. So that's a great example of what happens when as a CEO, you say, get me leads immediately. I put all thought around quality out the window and I will generate you leads. Whether they're gonna turn into customers or not, I don't care. You ask for leads, I'm producing leads. I'm good, what sales does with those leads is up to them. And that's not gonna be great for sales. You're wasting their time and, and, and their effort and money in sales. You're, you're kind of wasting your own marketing money. Like a lot of names does not always produce revenue. You really want people who are qualified and, and ready to talk to sales and, and ready to buy something. So I hope that's a good illustration of immediately how I would change my perspective on what I'm doing from what's going to produce high quality sales ready leads for reps versus quality, you know, just quantity of leads to, to you know, tell my boss like, yep, here you go. You got your leads. Well, I mean, the whole show is called What's Wrong with Revenue? And you just pointed it out, right? Oh, here's a thousand people that I converted. Not qualified whatsoever. Now I have to uh, tax the sales department. They don't get the results they're looking for and revenue does not go up. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, you know, the easiest thing to do is to contact an executive appointment setting company, right? AKA cold calling, right? Hey, let's call a whole bunch of people and we'll sell some stuff. And meanwhile, they're just churning, churning, churning. Remember, the goal of the executive appointment setting company is to provide names, not revenue. So now they're saying, oh, I got you asked for 15 a week. Here's 15 a week. And then eventually the salespeople say, let's cancel this because none of these are closing. That is, once again, short-term thinking. Now, account-based marketing, right, where we're still going after people that don't know us. 
at least there's a strategy, there's content, there's education, there's nurturing. All of that is going on to build that case, not just picking up the phone and bothering someone. Mike, I don't know if you caught those two people that came into our office today. Did you have to catch what was going on there? I did not. Two people appeared at our office, which by the way, we're the only two people in an office that's built out for 50 people. And the two people came in. Uh, I'm on a call. They're like, excuse me, excuse me. I'm like, yes, what can I do to help you? They're like, yes, we need a copy of your, of your uh, electric bill invoice. We could save you some money. So I put the call on mute. I'm like, please leave my office immediately. Such <laughs> short-term thinking, right? They sent in the attack squad into the actual office to bother us. We, I don't care if that company could save you a million dollars. I'm never doing business with them. Short-term that's, thinking. That's funny you should say that. I actually got a call today from a local number on my cell phone, which you know, I, I don't answer my phone unless I know who it is. But because it was local and I have local people contacting me related to my move, I'm like, I better answer it. It was a cold call. I said, please don't use this number again. Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with your company, but I'm not interested in talking to you right now. Thank you very much. It, it's shocking how many people have reverted back to these old school tactics. And I can only think it's because they can't get any of the new tactics to work. So well, let's just do what we always did. Term. Hopefully it'll be okay. Right. It's short term, right? Okay. Which way should we go this month? You know what? Let's put $50,000 into cold calling. Okay. Check the box. I did something. My boss can't yeah. yell at me. I did it. I spent the yeah. budget. But really? Yeah. What cold calling? I mean, why don't we, you know, I gave the example, I think on episode number two of our mailroom that's piled sky high with packages that are coming in for people that don't work in the office. Like, oh, we'll just mail things to people. But wait, what about COVID? They're working from home. Maybe that won't work. Should we go about another way of doing it? And I think you're right. I think COVID screwed up all of the traditional thinking. And now people are frantic and scrambling and spending money on things that aren't going to get them results, even in the near term. Yeah. All right, so let's do a question because the, the, our audience has really enjoyed the question. So here's one that came in, uh, I think it was yesterday, from John in Denver. I've heard this before, think long-term, but how long is long-term? How, how long do I have to wait to see results from my investment in digital transformation? Now, you said 10 years. I think that's a little long. No, 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 no. I was using that as a I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a right. point. I know you didn't make, mean someone has to wait 10 years, but- right. Well, how would you answer this question? Like, we want them to think long, long term. We're encouraging people to think long term. How long? How long is long term? Really, what what is the window they should be looking at? Well, I always revert it back to sales cycle, right? So you have to look at your sales cycle. If I'm the kind of company that takes six months to close a piece of business, then I have to go through a couple of sales cycles in order to get the results. Why? Because the first sales cycle, when I'm rolling out my campaign, my thought about strategic campaign, I might add. Well, I get some initial results that aren't going to be perfect. So I then have to take the next sales cycle and I have to adjust it. I have to let another group of people come through the next six months. So if it's two sales cycles or three sales cycles, I think that that would be reasonable. That gives you time to get initial results, make adjustments, and then have some kind of consistent uh, performance on that specific campaign or activity or tactic, whatever you want to call it. Now, that's frustrating for a lot of people. What? I'm going to have to wait 18 months before I can really have uh, consistent results of my uh, uh, marketing and sales? Yes, that's actually right. If I'm thinking long term, then what I want to do is take that time to perfect that specific campaign 
And then when I'm comfortable that it's perfected, I want to pour a boatload of money in it to replicate it over and over again. So it's kind of like slow down to speed up because let's look at it as a series of six sales cycles. The first three sales cycles, I was perfecting. But the next three sales cycles, I'm killing it. I'm just uh, breaking all sorts of sales records because the, what I worked on for a year plus is now coming back to me in a high return on investment. But because nobody wants to wait a year and a half, two years to get good results, well, let's have multiple channels going on and we're testing and cracking the code on that so that things are running parallel. I might, like a, a good private equity firm, they're looking for one home run one triple, one double, and then a bunch of singles. It's the same thing with marketing. If I roll out eight to 10 different campaigns, one of them is going to be a home run, but I won't be able to determine that's a home run until I go through a couple of sales cycles. So think about it in terms of that. Now, if your sales cycle is two weeks, okay, great. You might be able to perfect a campaign in just a couple of months and then pour some additional money onto that. But it really does come back to your sales cycle in my experience. I'm going to give everybody a different perspective on, on what this means. So I don't think it's about months or weeks or years. I think what long-term thinking means is I'm going down this path and I'm not turning back. I think it means I'm not going to be making cold calls anymore. I think it means I'm not going to be buying lists and sending cold emails or direct mail or whatever old school tactics might still be in play. I think long-term thinking means I'm uh, at, when Cortez landed in the new world, he burned his boats. So his guys wouldn't feel the desire to, to want to go back to Spain. I think it's that. I think you have to lead your company through this transformation and never turn back. I can tell you personally from the clients that we've worked with over 18 years, the ones that looked at their work with us with that lens did much better than the ones that looked at it like, what are these guys going to get me in the next couple of months? Uh, they also never thought about stopping. They always looked at, at it as like, I'm going to have to invest in this every month, whether it's with Square2 or someone else or on my own, or that's a different story. But they knew that this was something they were going to do every single month for the rest of the life of their business. That's what I think long-term means. So if you look at it like that, I do think you will see results sooner than later. And next we're going to talk about, well, what, what might some of those early results be? If I, you know, if I need to have a long-term perspective on things, that's fine, but I still need to know that progress is being made and, and progress is being made every month. So, you know, another question is what uh, short-term metrics should I be looking at if I have a long-term perspective on this, which I think is actually the right question. You want to be making sure that your program is progressing with a long-term perspective. So let, let's get into that. So I've decided that I'm never going to stop with this digital transformation initiative. It's something my company needs. I'm going to invest in it every single month. I, I'm never going back, right? And so, it matches the behavior of my buyers because that's important. We've strategically developed personas. We know that they want to act with us this way and we're sticking to it, right? Fair enough. I mean, we talk about that at nauseum. So I'm assuming that that's in place, but yes, that's fair enough. You, 
I mean, without a strategy, you, you would just, you know, meander on this journey. So you, you need a strategy, but so I'm committed now, right? So yep. how do I know it's working? How, you know, what could I expect after a couple of months, right? Because a lot of our clients, we ask them, prospects specifically, well, what would success look like in 90 days? And a lot of them don't really know. They, they kind of have some idea, but they, they, they're not clear enough as far, as far as I'm concerned about what success would look like. So how would you answer that question, Eric? Like, I, I, I'm in, I'm committed, I'm never turning back. But after three months, what should I start to see? That would give me some indication that we're on the right track. And, and then I will answer after a year, what would give me some indication that we're on the right track. Okay. Okay. So are these uh, changes that I'm making from a digital transformation point, marketing or sales? Both. We're, we're all okay. in on the cross the buyer journey, right? We're okay, looking great. at this holistically. That's great. Okay, good. So what I would like to see in the first 90 days is website traffic go up, right? Because there's a, so many things that are affecting that. Number one, if I'm doing my campaigns, because remember digital transformation, so I'm using digital tools, the keystone, the linchpin, the center point of your entire uh, program is going to be your website. Nobody spends $50,000 on a piece of software unless they check out the company's website. So they're going to go there. Also, if my strategy is holding true and I'm doing like you uh, gave that nice reference from outer, then I'm going to get referrals and buzz in the marketplace. Hey, have you checked out this company? They're doing something a little differently. You should check out their website too. So I think website traffic in the mindset of a digital transformation is a great leading indicator of am I starting to uh, get results or not now? It could be modest, right? We have to make sure that we're taking the long-term view. So if it's 5% more, 6% the next month, 7%, at least we're seeing the trend go up and to the right. So I would start as my first metric as website traffic. How about you? Well, it's a good, it's a good consideration. And I think for me, it's going to come down to if I am running demand generation campaigns, then yes, I think website traffic is a good early indicator that things are moving in the right direction. Um, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but not every tactic produces increases in website traffic immediately. And, and three months is, is very early, especially if you're starting from zero or, or close to zero, right? I, I think a better early indicator would be conversions on your website. And this basically allows you to take advantage of an asset that everybody has. Everybody has a website and everybody has traffic coming to the website. You might only have 500 people. You might have 1,000 people. You might have 5,000 people. You might have 50,000 people. But there are people coming to your website every single month. And Honestly, lately, Eric, I don't recall anyone having less than 5,000. I do recall back when we started this, you know, you, we met lots of people who had a couple of hundred. So it seems like generally, and it makes sense, you, you don't do business with a company without going to their website, no matter what industry you're in or what you're trying to buy. Like, well, let me take a look at their website. It's the first thing people say. So uh, you can turn those visitors into... I'm not going to call them, well, I can call them marketing qualified leads, so they might not be ready to buy it, but they're certainly interested in what you do. So by adding just a handful of educational materials to your website and putting them on your existing website strategically, I think an early indicator could be marketing qualified leads. 
again, not saying these are going to buy anything from you, but if you have a website with 5,000 people and you're getting 10 new contacts a month, you should probably be looking at more like 50 new contacts a month. So I could take your existing website in whatever condition it is, create some content, put it up and get you from 10 to 50 on 5,000 visits a month in three months. And I think that would be an early indicator that the transformation you're talking about is starting to produce some results, right? Now to Eric's point, there are many other things that would have to take place too to, to really optimize this kind of approach. For instance, you have to nurture those new people. You have to have conversations with them. You have to can provide them with additional information all along the way. Eventually, they may decide they want to talk to sales. Sales has to be trained up on how to deal with somebody like that and continue the experience. And this is where Eric's comment about strategy comes into play. You really can't generate even a single lead until you know what that person's experience is going to be all across their buyer journey. What happens after they convert the first time? What happens if they want to talk to a sales rep? What happens if they want to chat with you? Who picks that up? Like all of these questions have to be asked and answered. Assuming that's in place, I think what Eric said and what I'm saying are both good considerations for early indicators that something's working with your website. Now, Let's shift gears and go a year down the road. So it's now a year later, and we've been doing this strategic marketing, sales, and customer service digital transformation for a year. Now, Eric, what should I expect from my business 12 months down the road? Well, I'm not going to go to the easy layout, which would be more revenue. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I am going to talk about close rate, and I'll explain why. We talked about taking a long-term view. One of the biggest things about taking a long-term view is really working on your strategy, right? Turning the Titanic from the old boring story you used to tell about your company, uh, now making it all about your prospects and clients and having a real rich differentiation strategy and basically giving them something interesting to talk about that beats the pants off your competition. That digital um, transformation has to start with a great story. I don't care what kind of marketing you're doing. If you don't have a great story, don't spend any money on marketing because you'll look like everybody else. And then you have to be the lowest cost competitor to win. So we're assuming that we went through the process of having a rich story and a great differentiation. If I then let that great story cascade down into any of the digital tactics that I'm using, people should start perking up. People should start, um, uh, realizing that you're a much better option and you should be closing more deals at a faster pace. Now, this is all about what's wrong with revenue. Uh, we've talked previously on other episodes about the fact that a lot of people are like, get me more traffic to my website, when really lots of times the lowest hanging fruit is get my close rate from 10% to 20%, which isn't that hard if you have a good plan, if you have a good story, if you have good tools to do that. So, when I look at it a year from now, my campaigns are running, my story is strong, I'm, I'm differentiating myself, I should be able to close more deals in a shorter period of time. That's one of the big indicators that I've learned. Now look, I'm the sales guy, I'm always looking for how can I close more deals, but that whole digital transformation should be supporting the sales effort to make sure that we can drive more revenue. Yeah, I think that's 100% something you would be able to see and you kind of alluded to it, but I'm going to add it, the sales cycle shorter, right? I think 
yes, you should be closing more opportunities, but you also should be closing them faster. If, if someone has had a great experience from a marketing perspective with your company and they're emotionally bought in, sales picks them up and does an amazing job taking them the last 15% you know, percent of the way there, that, should happen, that, that cycle should be much shorter than it was when you started. And that drives revenue. So increasing close rate and shorter sales cycle and more marketing qualified leads and more sales opportunities, like those metrics alone should produce more revenue. And I think a year, Eric didn't want to take the layup, but I think 12 months, if you're doing it correctly, and I preface this because most people don't do it correctly. If you're investing the right amount of money and your programs are orchestrated, and it's built upon a foundation of solid strategy, and you're looking at all the areas where revenue is hiding, I mean, marketing, sales, and customer service, I think after a year, you should see improvements in revenue if you're doing it right. Now, if you're not doing it right, it's a different story. You might not realize the kind of revenue growth that you're looking for. And I'm certainly not saying you're gonna be doing 50% better, but you should see growth, what you did in the same time period last year versus that same time period this year, it should be better if you've let this program run for 12 months and you've done it correctly. And, and you've resisted the urge to take shortcuts. You've resisted the urge to take shortcuts. You've resisted the urge to pivot your entire company. This happens very frequently. We're four months into it, everything's built. And our, you know our, our, our CEO client says, well, we've decided to go an entirely different direction and we're now selling X to Y, right? Okay, great. That's absolutely no problem, but we literally have to start again. So the four months that we spent getting everything set up for the old market and the old offering now has to be pivoted. It's going to take us the same amount of time to, to get it back to the same position for the new pivot. So you know, there are a lot of unrelated things that can cause this to go off the rails. So when we say a year, you know, we're expecting you to be solid in your go-to-market and not chase a shiny object, cause us to rethink everything and, and start over again. So Look, to, I, open, to open the kimono mic, right? If any of our visitors know that our firm, Square Two, one of the biggest differentiators is this accelerator program, right? Six months worth of work in 30 days. This is not a sales pitch. This is an example. You know, when we go to market with that, we didn't know if it was going to work, but we said, this is the way our future is going. People don't want to wait for results. They want to roll up their sleeves. They want to get in there. They want to fix what's going on, execute the digital transformation as quickly as possible and go to market. We didn't know whether it was going to work, but we decided we're going to give it the old college try and nothing has persuaded us. We still offer retainer programs, but we highlight the accelerator. And it took some while to convince the first person that this wacky 30-day engagement was correct. And they had a great experience. And then we had two more and three more. And now we're struggling with keeping up with the demand. But that's two and a half years later after we introduced a new product without um, pivoting to say, well, we gave it a couple of months and nobody's taking it. So let's just go on to something else. We put our head down with pig-headed determination and said, we're going to change the way that marketing agencies deliver marketing services and we're not going to stop. And we're reaping the benefits of it now two and a half years later. But that's that persistence, that pig-headed determination that I think you're referring to. Yeah. Let me just um, remind people, if you do have any questions, Eric and I are happy to answer them. Just throw them in the Q&A at the bottom of the Zoom uh, window. So um, I want to I go to another question because this one's really interesting. It's about sales. 
So the question is from David in Toronto. How would a change like this impact sales? Like we've been talking a lot about marketing. We've been talking a lot about long-term thinking related to marketing. And mar I mean, we did talk about some sales metrics, but if I shifted from a closed business today mentality to a longer-term digital transformation around sales, his question specifically is, how does closed deals today shift to a more long-term perspective? And Eric, I want to direct your comments to, I know you have a friend in the, uh, um, what I call that, like the, the uh, computer business, you know, the aftermarket Apple products and stuff like that, who actually changed the compensation of his sales team from yes. closed business to something else. So talk about that a little bit, because I think that illustrates a shift on the sales side from short-term to long-term thinking, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I actually have okay. two components that match up nicely with that. So the first thing is, I'm sure everybody in the audience has read our book, Fire Your Sales Team Today. In Fire Your Sales Team Today, we strongly urge people, uh, or sorry, we strongly urge business leaders to change the name of the title from salesperson to sales guide. And that guide's function is to guide someone through the process of buying, not sell them something. Hey, what can I do to put you into a Chevy today? But more of like, what questions do you have? Let me help you. Let me co-create a program. Let me build you the perfect solution to your problem, right? So number one, you want to be thinking as guiding, not selling. But the example you're given to is a company called Springboard IT. And they sell Apple products. They're not the Apple store. They're Apple resellers like you could get at lots of different places. They realize that their short-term um, goals of, of beating each month uh, were, not, were just falling short. Salespeople were under pressure. He was having turnover in the sales department. Sell, 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 sell was the name of the game. And he decided he had enough. So he decided after looking at his net promoter score that lots of his people did not have a good experience with his company and he wanted to change that. So how he started was by changing the compensation program in one of his three stores to if you get mentioned by name and a client that you sold to has a net promoter score over X, you will get your commission. If you do not have a net promoter score, you get nothing. And he uh, gave it a few months uh, in order for the people to kind of like change their opinion. He had to turn over some of his salespeople. He was looking for people that had characteristics of a nurse nurturing, let me help you, not the salesperson from the used car lot. That took a little time to change over. And after a few months, I'm not quite sure if it was three, four or five months, the store with the compensation plan based on net promoter score beat the other two st uh, stores handily. Now, what was happening was when I'm not under pressure to sell something, but I am under pressure to make my clients super happy that they give me a net promoter score and would recommend them to other friends, they spent all sorts of time with these people. They took the um, uh, um, governor off of the, I got to go on to the next person and sell them something too. Let's really go deep on what you want this computer or computer accessory for. And these people were getting amazing experiences in these retail stores. Now you opened it up with like, well, you know, bad experience or good experience through the sales process. And here he was compensating people to provide good experiences. Of course, after the initial test period, all three stores transitioned over to the net promoter score compensation plan, and he was on his way to breaking all sorts of sales records. But I got to tell you, that took a little bit of guts, a little bit of chutzpah to make that change when everybody else in the world is, what can I do to sell you an Apple computer today? 
Yeah, and there's there's a lot of, I mean, I wanted you to tell that specific story because it's a little more real world. I think a lot of people, if you haven't heard about the Zappos story, there's like a famous Zappos story where when, when Zappos was not owned by Amazon, customer service was their thing. They, pr- prior to that, all service organizations were mostly measured on how quickly they could get off the phone when people called in. And Zappos went completely the opposite direction and gave their customer service team ultimate authority to stay on the phone as long as they wanted to. And the the story is uh, someone called late at night over to Zappos. They were looking for a place to get a pizza and the Zappos customer service rep spent, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes helping this customer find a place to get a pizza late night. I don't, I don't remember what city it was, but you know, that is, was at the time unheard of in that space. It was all about call metrics and how quickly could you get the, get off the phone and, and, and how many calls could you handle? And now it's, it's obviously completely different. You know, the, the outer story I told at the beginning of the call was obviously a completely different experience too. They had invested heavily in that customer service team to have someone monitoring chat, responding via email. I mean, they responded via email within 24 hours every time I sent them an email. And I was getting multiple responses from the orders team and this woman, Olivia, who was working with me directly. I always knew that, that you know, what to expect from them. And that's a, a big part of the puzzle too. I think it's difficult for people to make the change from traditional metrics to unconventional metrics, like the story you told, Eric. But it's a, it, it's, it's a requirement. And, and again, since we're talking about long-term versus short-term, that's another great example. I'm willing to give up what we used to do, which produced short-term results, maybe in exchange for new results with a, with a long-term perspective, right? By the way, who knows what else I'm going to buy from this company? Like, yes, I bought some outdoor furniture, but they're coming out with new products all the time. I could buy pillows. I could buy a mosquito repellent blanket. I could buy a coffee table. I could buy additional uh, 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 items to, for, to, for the set that I already purchased. Like they got to maintain that relationship with me in order for me to continue to, to, to want to do business with them. So uh, there's a lot buried in that around long-term. I don't know too many sales organizations that are comfortable shifting from commission based on sales to compensation based on how happy people are. But I think it's something that a lot more people should consider um, I also, I don't know the details here, but I think HubSpot, which is a, a marketing automation platform, a, a sales platform that we prov- uh, help a lot of our clients with, they have a similar um, compensation plan for their direct reps. It's, it's not just about sales that month, it's about retention. So it's not just about making their nut and signing up people who are going to cancel in two months. It's about signing people up who are going to be around for a long, long time, who are going to upgrade, buy more, grow with the company and stick around. You know, everyone knows it's much cheaper to get revenue from an existing client than it is to get an entirely new client. So there are changes going on in the world around us. And again, if you want to be long-term oriented and you really want to look at having digital transformation fuel your company's growth, these are things that you, you ought to be thinking about. Anything 100%, else, Eric? 100%. Couldn't have said it better myself. Okay. 
So let's take a little break here and let's do a new segment. Can you see uh -oh. that? Screen sharing. Can you see that? Sure can. This segment is called Love It or Leave It. You like my animation? Yeah, I man. wish I could have plugged it right into the Zoom, but maybe in a future episode, we'll have some technology to help with that. This episode is called Love It or Leave It. This is where Eric and I talk about a specific marketing sales or customer service tactic or executable, and we debate whether we love it or leave it. So in this episode of Love It or Leave It, Eric, I would like you to comment on search engine optimization. Do you love it or are you ready to leave it? I love it. You I love absolutely it. love it. Tell us why you love it. Well, I love it and I hate it. And I'll tell you why. Because lots of clients or prospective clients might come to us and say, I don't get enough traffic to my website. And I don't want to use paid campaigns because I don't have a really big budget. So search engine optimization, the efforts to make sure that the website is optimized, found on Google, high in the listings to generate uh, more traffic and be found by prospective buyers is the way to go. So I do love it. Number one, I love it because it's organic, meaning that if you're doing the right things and, and people are searching for you, Google will identify that and you will gently percolate up through the listings because you're doing the right thing. I like it because I don't have to pay for that. Yes, I have to pay for my team to make content. I have to pay for my um, uh, development team to make sure that my tags are correct and all those things, but I don't have to pay for it. And once I get up to the top, as long as I'm maintaining that, it's hard for my competition to leapfrog. But I hate it because it's one of those tactics that requires the long-term vision that we talk about. And that means it takes some time to optimize something. Now, you know, people say, well, you know, get, get me optimized. Okay, no problem. With a great strategy, it could be one month, could be three months, could be six months. But the problem there is that the short-term thinker does not want to wait that long in order to start getting leads from that channel. So there's a, a little bit of a dichotomy there between the time it takes to execute that tactic but the bounty that comes from being uh, uh, listed high on the phrases that your company should quote unquote own is almost invaluable. That can hold on to that lead channel for years, years to come where you're listed number one for this thing and traffic is coming. By the way, if it's a long tail phrase, it's even better because you're narrowing the people that are uh, Googling that. And they're coming to you somewhat pre-qualified because nobody in their right mind would Google so many words unless it was perfect for what you wanted to be found for. So I do love it. I think it's a great tactic, but I hate when we get pushback from uh, antsy folks who don't want to wait for that result to come in. Okay, so I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to leave it. And I, in it, you know, uh, to put a little wrapper around my comment, it's not that I don't think SEO is good. I think... You need to be found on Google. People are doing searches for your business. I think it's, it's, it's very important. But I'm saying leave it because there's a lot to it. And there's a lot of places to make mistakes. And it requires an extremely long-term perspective. And as we've been talking about today, a lot of people don't have that long-term perspective. And let, let me illustrate really what it takes to get found on Google. First of all, you need to be very clear in what keywords you're looking for at, to be found for, and you need to be very aware of what your competitors are doing. So you might want to be found for Healthcare Insurance Philadelphia. Good luck. You're not going to be found for that when 
Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Novacare, all these major companies have been optimizing their website and, and their content for this for years. You, it's kind of like square two trying to be number one for inbound. Like we're just never going to catch up to HubSpot. They've just had, they, they created, they should be ranked ahead of us. They created the phrase. They've been optimizing it forever. They have a much bigger website than we do. They have a much uh, a bigger machine to create content around the, the phrase inbound marketing. As much as I'd love to be number one for it or even first page for it, it's going to be extremely hard. So I could literally put all of my resources behind something like that. And maybe I would get to the top of the second page. Maybe I would get to the bottom of the first page, but the chances of me getting high enough to really move the needle is probably pretty low. Sorry to interrupt Mike, but uh, to your story, what if I was optimizing inbound marketing for Philadelphia law firms? How would that play? Well, that would be easier, obviously. So, but I and- mean, is Independence Blue Cross doing that? They probably are, right. But but there's less people optimizing for long tail than there are. And there's less money getting put into long tail. But you're right, it's, it, it's gonna be challenging, but not as challenging as the first keyword phrase I threw out there. Um, the other part of it is, it's kind of a moving target. So you've created these assets and you're ranked for certain keywords and you're getting good organic traffic from it. And Google changes the rules by redoing their algorithm and you have to not start all over again, but you have to really evaluate what those changes mean to you. For instance, about uh, four or five months ago, this was May, I think it was May, the recent update penalized websites and web pages that did not optimize on mobile, literally would not present them if they didn't provide a good mobile experience. So most well, if you know what you're doing, you have a responsive website that runs on all devices. But if for some reason you didn't, you were invisible when someone did a search on mobile. Now, you, you might not know this, but 60% of initial searches are done on devices like phones and, and iPads and things like that. Then people go back and look at it on their laptops. So the mobile search, being present for mobile search is critical, right? And if you didn't have a responsive page and you didn't look good and your page didn't render quickly or your, and your images might've been too big, you were gone from those searches. So you could have literally fallen off a cliff as soon as they updated that. Now you, you can try to stay ahead of it. You can try to be aware of what Google's gonna be doing. They, do, they are more transparent these days than they used to be in terms of what the changes mean to keep people uh, current with what's going on. But, but being SEO, focused takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of work. So I'm only saying leave it in terms of, I think there are better ways to spend your money to drive results. I don't think it's something you want to completely forget, but to, to make a point and be contrary to what Eric's saying, I'm taking the love, the leave it perspective because I think it's hard. I think it takes a, a, a very long-term perspective. And I think it takes a skill set that a lot of people don't have. When we help clients with SEO, there are three different areas that are equally important. And if you miss one of them, can really impact results. You have to have the right content. I mean, your pages have to be optimized for your keywords. They have to be written with, with search in mind. They have to be technically correct, meaning they have to load quickly. They have to render quickly on mobile. 
you have to have a low bounce rate. You have to have a high click-through rate. You have to have a high time on site. You know, all these things signal Google that your pages are valuable. It means you have to really have a great page. You can't just throw some copy up there and think you're going to be optimized for SEO. You certainly can't stuff it with keywords like you could 15 years ago. You have to really deliver an amazing experience. That's why pillar pages, which are really long, really in-depth, uh, comprehensive pages are really how we drive SEO results. And those pages are expensive. They take a long time to, to create and design properly to deliver an amazing experience. And the, the last, so we talk about technical, we talk about content. You really have to deliver a, a, an equally good user experience. When people land on your site, they have to know why they're there. They have to know where you want them to go. They have to engage with your content. Those three areas are constantly being evaluated and optimized to really drive results with SEO. If I compare that to a demand generation campaign that's gonna drive paid visitors to my web threat through Facebook or through LinkedIn or through Instagram or even paid Google ads, I could queue those up. I could align them with the company's strategy. I could create some pages on the website and I could get them up in a week. So that's why I'm saying I'm gonna leave it. I don't really mean I'm gonna leave it, but for me, if I'm thinking long-term, it's part of my program. If I need to produce results, I'm going to lean towards some other tactics. Ideally, and this is what we were saying when we were talking about results in a year, ideally, you should be doing both. You should be launching those demand generation campaigns and working really hard to optimize your website pages for search. And in a couple of months, you would have a nice combination of people who found you landed on the site and people who searched for you landed on the site. You have top or you have early buyer journey people coming, you'll have late stage buyer journey people coming, and you'll have a nice blend of activity that you can point to and say, hey, we did it right, took a little longer, maybe required a little more investment than I was expecting, but I have the, a real solid foundation that can be built on over time. Anything you want to add, Eric? No, I agree. I mean, you're really summing up the multi-channel multi approach we touched upon earlier, right? Let me get six, seven, eight things working. Let me give them the time to work out. I might have go, no go points on some of them if it's not an acceptable return on investment, but at least I'm like working multiple things to help me grow from a variety of different ways. Too often, you know, we get a prospect who's like, yeah, yeah, I only want to talk about paid advertising. Well, it's just, it's just closed, uh, closed-minded. Yeah. Good. So I don't have any other questions. Uh, we covered our topic. We handled our new love it or leave it segment. I really appreciate everyone joining us. We are super happy that this is our fourth episode. I think the show's going well. The feedback has been good. Next week, we're going to talk about what's wrong with revenue when there's no awareness of the prospect's buyer journey. Now, just to tease this out a little bit, we have talked about the buyer journey a little bit over the first couple of episodes, but this is gonna be our opportunity to really dig into this. And I know y'all probably are a little tired of hearing us talk about strategy, but I just can't emphasize it enough. If you don't have a good solid foundation or strategy that you're going to lean on to drive revenue, you're never gonna see any results. It's, we are gonna see this all the time. They companies talk to us about how things just aren't where they wanted to be. And we always go back to the fact that there, there is no strategy. And when it comes to what do we need to do to put the strategy in place, 
the buyer journey and understanding it and mapping it really is the is the linchpin because you're going to talk about marketing you're going to talk about sales you're going to talk about customer service you're going to get intimate with what your prospects are thinking and feeling and looking for and the questions they're asking so i can't emphasize enough that in episode five we're going to really dig deep into this idea of prospect journey prospect buyer journey and we're going to share with you the cyclonic buyer journey if you're not familiar with that that is square two's methodology that provides a map and again, if you're lost in the wilderness and someone hands you a map, you're going to get home. If you don't have the map, you're going to just wander around until maybe someone finds you or you stumble upon a road and maybe that road will take you out. The map is really important to helping you get to where you're trying to go with digital transformation. So we'll talk about the cyclonic buyer journey. We'll talk about how you use it. We'll talk about how it unlocks a lot of questions that CEOs have when it comes to driving this digital transformation. It's a show you're, you're not going to want to miss. And uh, with that, Barak, you have no other comments. I will sign off, say thank you to everybody who joined us. If you want to take a look at the recording, it'll be on our website at the bottom in the footer, what's wrong with revenue. The shows are getting posted to our YouTube channel, typically tomorrow. The podcasts are posted to every place podcasts are uh, except your favorite podcast platform. You should be able to find the podcast. What's what's wrong with revenue? You might have to search a little extra. I've been doing some poking around myself and sometimes it takes a little more because we're new to find what's wrong with revenue. Try quotes, try square two, but with a little bit of effort on all the podcast platforms, you can find the show. And then once you subscribe to the show, you'll get notified uh, of new episodes as they're posted. And you can always subscribe on our website, and we will literally send you the show the next day. Thank you all for joining. Have a really great rest of your day. And with that, I'll say good night. See you next week.